All right, there should be a handout. Did those get out yet? Yes, all right. The men are working on them right now. You should get one of those. In the meantime, thanks for being here on an off night. Um, I'm looking around. Man, almost every section is full, and that's after people went out for discipleship. And so it's a Tuesday night in the middle of the fall, a little chilly. Thank you so much for being faithful. I love how our people love church. I really do. And so, of course, Pastor is, as Brother Dan mentioned, he's out a little bit early to the couple's retreat, and very well-deserved. Those of us on staff know it's very hard. Uh, It's hard to beat Pastor on campus in the mornings. Um, Pastor Myers is one of the hardest working. uh, Thank you. Uh, Is this on for me? Okay, good. I used to not like the lapel mic, and now I've gotten used to it. So we'll go back to this. We'll get used to it real quick here. Uh, But Pastor Meyer's one of the hardest working people that you'll meet. Uh, Seth, you know this. All the men on staff know this. You're hard-pressed to get here on property in the morning. He's normally the one that unlocks, turns off the alarm, and that's even when we come early. And so very well-deserved. And by the way, I hope that you're thankful that God gave us our pastor uh, to lead us. Uh, over the past decade that he has, and also uh, to lead us through the program, to lead us through this building project, and to lead us in the different areas that Brother Dan mentioned. And so, by the way, it would be good if every once in a while, I try to do it, probably not as much as I ought to, but send a quick text and say, Pastor, thank you for all you do. And I promise you it'll mean something, maybe a quick email, and that would be a blessing. Uh, Right there in your handout, you see... Uh, 10 points, and, and pastor says often, you see the points and you look at the time. We are going to finish in a timely manner tonight. Uh, I believe we'll at least get through the first couple points, and uh, we'll do what we can do. Pastor often, often references, I think this is the first part you uh, have there uh, with blanks, and pastor often references the fact that as Christians, we have... Two options. How many options? Oh, we got to talk here tonight. How many options? We've got two options. You have it here. We can live the abundant Christian life on one side that God has for us, or we can live what we call the wilderness life or the wandering, unfulfilled Christian life here on the other side. One of the saddest things for those of us that work in ministry is seeing people, you've seen them. How many of you have been here at least five years? You've been in the Christian Christian life for at least five years, ten years. That's what I'm talking about. Brother Dave, how many years now? Yes, sir. Two decades. Man, that's what I'm talking about. Thanks for being faithful. But I look around and if you've been here for five, ten, fifteen years, you've seen it too. One of the saddest things that those of us in ministry see, and those of you that have been around, are people that have all types of potential. Families that have all types of potential for God. Young people, and you see that young person, and you say, man, that person can do something great for God. And you see a couple, and you say, that couple's going to make it for God. They're going to do something great. They're going to make a difference in the kingdom of Christ. And then five years goes by, and 10 years goes by, and 15 years goes by, 20 years goes by, and those families, those couples, those young people aren't so young anymore, and they are nominal Christians at best. Non-factors. 
in the Lord's army. We say this often, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 2 through 3 shows us that we have three enemies that are working against us having the abundant, fulfilled Christian life. What are those? You have this here in your notes. Letter A, first of all, we have the devil. The devil, John chapter 10 verse 10 says this, says, The thief cometh not, but for to steal, and to kill, and to destroy. So you've got the thief, that's the devil on one side, and he's coming to do what? To kill, uh, to steal, steal, excuse me, to kill, and to destroy. He wants to take away your potential, that abundant Christian life. You have on the other side, the Lord Jesus Christ, look here what he has for us. I am come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. A pastor and I were talking in the office just this past week, and, and pastors mentioned it from the pulpit uh, recently, and he said, we give the devil way too much credit sometimes, right? You've heard the old phrase, what is it? Blame it on the devil. What, what do they say? Devil made me do it, right? You know the old phrase. And uh, sometimes we just, we just put temptations, in, we leave temptations in our life, we feed the flesh, and we want to blame it on the devil. That ain't the devil, that's us feeding the flesh, right? But... Uh, there was a, a court case, I believe it was in the 1980s, I'm sure some of you, I call you old timers, I was born in the 80s, but uh, you would uh, remember the case where there was a, a little boy, and they said that the boy was possessed, and so they tried exorcisms and all this stuff, and there was a family there, they had a priest come and try to perform a quote, exorcism on the boy, and the group there claim. Uh, they claimed that they saw the, the, the demon leave the boy and go into the man, and then the man went, he murdered someone. And what was his, this was the first time in the court of law where someone actually used the devil as an excuse to commit murder on the record, right? And what was the, the defense? The devil made me do it, right? And so sometimes we just need to get over that. It's not the devil, stop giving him so much credit. But on the flip side, the devil is our enemy. And he wants to steal your joy, steal your kids, steal the abundant Christian life. He wants to steal. He also wants to kill. You know, the devil is savage. You think, you, you, and I think of savage, I'm sorry if I'm getting political here. I think of like a, a Nancy Pelosi, right? Some of those people, it's like, man, those people are savage. Do not cross them even in their own party. You're done, right? I, I think of different people where you think of some, some fighters. You think that guy's savage. Uh, Satan is a whole lot more savage. He has no mercy. He'll lie to you, he'll deceive you, he'll get you to fall, and once you're on the ground, he'll step on you, he'll take the sword, and if he can, he will execute you spiritually, right? He comes to kill, and he comes to destroy. The devil is our enemy. I don't think the devil himself knows your name, Seth. I don't think he knows my name. Brad, I don't think he knows your name either. He's probably got bigger people to worry about. However, there are territorial spirits, there are familiar spirits. They do know you, they do know me, and they're trying to do everything they can to get us to fall. We have the devil and his cohorts. Next, you see it there. I'll just give this to you real quick so you can fill it in if you have it. Satan has two primary goals for mankind. First, to keep us from salvation, and secondly, to keep us, once we've been saved, from reaching our God-given potential. Number two, number two, we see the world. The what? Oh, talk to me, the what? The world. John 15, 19 says, If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. Is this talking to saved people or unsaved people? It's talking to saved people, right? Look here again. 
If ye were of the world, the world would love his own, but because ye are not of the world. We've been called out of the world. We're, we're Christians. But I have chosen you out of the world. Look here. Therefore, the world what? Talk to me. The world what? The world hateth you. We shouldn't be surprised when the world system hates who we are. And by the way, if we're trying to appease the world to reach the world, it'll never happen. Because the way God tells us to live life is incompatible. They are mutually exclusive. They can't coexist. Right? And so sometimes in our homes or in the church or individually, we say, maybe if I was just a little bit more worldly. No, we're not going to reach the world by being worldly. We're going to reach the world by living truth. Right? And that doesn't mean we're not compassionate. It doesn't mean we're not loving. But the world system, not the people, the world system is our enemy. That's why it's so dangerous to let the, let the world creep into your home. One of the best ways, left my phone right down there. But one of the best ways it tries to creep in our home with the world and the devil is through that cell phone, right? Through, through that television, through the internet, through those we allow, through entertainment. And so we've got the devil. We've got the world. And then number three, of course, we've got our flesh. Our flesh. You can fill that in if you're taking notes here. Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 25 we know that the law is spiritual, but, okay, this is the Apostle Paul here. This is encouraging. He says, we know the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. You ever feel like that? I feel like, man, I try, to, I, I try to constantly have a spirit-filled relationship with my wife, and I just say something I'm not supposed to say. Carnal, right? Brother Ramiro, I'm sure every word from the time you got mar married. I remember right before you got married, I believe it was, we had a building banquet. You remember that? And you gave a good amount. I remember that. And we're talking about that. I'm, but I'm sure you've had a spirit-filled conversation, lit, lit words, every moment of every day since that moment, right? Probably not. You ever feel like that? Man, I'm carnal. Uh, that was the Apostle Paul. He was honest. Uh, but he's, I'm carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that I do. You ever feel like that? Man, that's... Join the crowd, right? The, the disciples. How many times, uh, you, you know that next? For I know, here it is. I know that in me, that is in my, what's that next word? What is it? In my flesh dwelleth no good thing. And that's the one I want to talk about tonight. You've probably heard Pastor give the illustration before where they got doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists, college professors together, and they said, let's try to sum up life into one word. One word. If we can sum life up, what would we describe life as? Y'all remember the word? What was it? No, you don't remember it? I think I heard someone over here say it. What was it? Stress. My wife. Thank you. Someone listens to the preaching around here, right? Just kidding. Uh, stress. Stress. Now, how many of you can agree raising kids, paying the bills, seeing how much gas costs, this day and age. Okay, I know the administration says inflation is only 3 or 4%, uh, maybe each month, and then compounded, right? For the bird in your video, thank you for doing that for us. We were already encouraged enough, and then we had to see that, right? I'm just kidding. Uh, it's the reality of the situation. Life is stress. Can we agree about that, right? And so, but there's enough stress out there with the devil, out there with the world, that I would do well if I can eliminate as much stress that comes from within. Does that make sense? 
right? The devil is our enemy. There's going to be arrows. There's going to be fiery darts. There's going to be discouragement. There's going to be persecution. Then we've got the world, the world system. They can't stand who we are. We're bigots and we're this and we're that and we're uh, homophobe. And you can just go down the line. But then I've got my good old flesh. I can't do anything about those two. I can do something about this one, right? And so that's what I want to talk about tonight. In the book of Matthew, Christ identifies seven deadly, we'll call them sins, stress, they're sins. I'll call them stresses, not to soften the point, but to make a point tonight that seek to rob our joy and to rob us of the abundant Christian life. And we will briefly touch on the seven in about the 25 minutes that we have here. Hopefully we will uh, go through them. By the way, if I can say this, not only do they rob from our joy, um, it's proven that each one of these adversely affect our health. Uh, when Christ gives commands, it's not just necessarily spiritual well-being, higher quality of life. It's also relational, uh, re- relational quality of life. It's also physical quality of life, right? And so we'll talk about these tonight quickly. Number one, let's get right into it. Right into it. Inner stresses, inner sins that come from our flesh that rob us of our joy and rob us of the abundant Christian life. Number one, here it is. The stress of the sin of anger. Anger. How many of you would say, I've never been angry before? Okay, Brother Vinny. I'm asking Miss Jasmine, okay? How many days left? In the hot seat. Don't get it wrong. You discuss this after church, okay? <laughs> you got it right the other day when I asked you. Oh, uh, looky here. Look here. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 9, the Bible says, Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry. Look at this next phrase here. For anger rests in the bosom of fools. Anger rests in the bosom of fools. Other than moral impurity, anger, and we'll talk about lust and moral impurity tonight if we get there. Other than moral impurity, anger is probably the most destructive of these seven to relationships, to marriages, to families, and even out in society. They did a survey with Teenage, teenagers and kids, and they said, if you can change anything about your parents, what would it be? And uh, if I remember correctly, the highest uh, request on that list was, I wish my parents weren't mad all the time, wouldn't get angry so easily. And yet we are good at justifying our anger, are we not? We'll talk about it in just a minute where I think it'll be personal to all of us, myself included. Now, we might justify it. What is anger rooted in? Maybe pain from past hurts. Uh, how many of you have been hurt in the past? You don't have to raise your hand, just a rhetorical question. Every single one of us have, right? Backstabbed, criticized, falsely accused. Next, how about the pain of rejection? You ever been rejected? It's the classic picture of the two sports teams and that kid's the last one to be picked, right? Rejection. You can start at a young age. Next, the grief of, maybe it's the reaction to the unchangeables of life. By the way, There are some God-ordained unchangeables. Your race, that's God-ordained. Your parents, that's God-ordained. The time you were born in history, I wish I was born back such and such. No, the time you were born today for such a time as this, that's God-ordained, right? 
there are different unchangeables. And sometimes we want to get angry about things that we cannot change. Our physical features, right? There are things that God so put in our DNA we can do nothing about. But sometimes we, are, we seek to get angry about it. The grief of favoritism, the hurt of rejection, maybe pride itself. Maybe it's personal faults. Maybe it's generalizations and someone did something to someone in our family, so we generalize an entire group by that. Isn't that why we have racial wars and whatnot in our country, right? We generalize an entire group of people on both sides of the aisle, by the way, right? And so, oh, everyone of this race is bad because of what they did, you know, at this time. And everyone in this race is bad because it's a culture of oppression and whatnot. So you generalize, you get angry about it, and you go burn half the city down, right? And so on both sides of the aisle, it can be, we generalize, right? And we get angry about it, unjustly so, unjustly so. Next, expectations, real expectations or imagined promises they don't come to fruition. How about taking offense, even for others? Here's some ways we excuse our anger. Here it is, all right? I'm just irritated, right? Is that a good excuse? Just irritated today. Now you're angry. <laughs> I'm just frustrated. I'm just plumb out of patience. Brother Two, you ever been there? I'm sure never on the mission field did you run out of patience. I'm sure you're just, just flowing with it, right? Grace and the spirit and, and the whole nine yards. I'm just agitated. No, I'm just disgusted with what they did. I'm shocked by that. I'm just tired. I'm tired today. How about this? No, today's a grouchy day. <laughs> no excuses here. Uh, or here it is. I'm just righteously indignant, right? How many of you have heard that before? That's a justification. Oh, the Bible says be angry and sin not. What's the context of that? Be angry and sin not is I'm angry for the sake of God's glory and what's being done to God or others, not what people are doing against me. That's what being angry and sinning not is, right? And so, anyhow, here it is. This is important. Anger is a reaction to a perceived violation of our rights and or expectations. And so we lash out because we say it was justified. Next, anger is also a manifestation of a lack of a spirit-controlled life. When we grew up, my dad often said, anger and lust are twin giants. Show me someone that's always angry, a man that's always angry, not every time, but many times he also struggles with lust. You say, why is that? Because if you can't control your spirit and you lash out angrily, you probably, it's, not, it's probably not isolated to anger. It's reaching into other areas of life. Why? You have a lack of self-control. Either that didn't make sense or it just got really quiet in here. Look at Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11. The discretion of a man deferreth his anger. Oh, I think I missed this here. What's the proper response when we are tempted to be angry. First of all, we see the perspective there in your notes. I am called as a Christian to meekness. What is meekness? Meekness is strength under control, right? It doesn't mean I don't have the perfect comeback. Brother Jay, you ever at work and, 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 and someone probably says something they shouldn't say, or maybe at home, I won't, I won't tell Ms. Baron, um, or you're out and about, and, and someone says something they shouldn't say, and you have the perfect comeback. You ever been there? I've been there. 
Meekness does not mean I don't know what to say or I don't have the ability to respond in anger. It means that I have the ability to and I choose not to anyways. That's what meekness is. That's what Christ did. Next, I'm called to a Christ-like response. Christ, when he was reviled, what did he do? Come talk to me. He reviled not again, right? And so he loved his enemies and whatnot. Next, let's move here. Let's move. Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good. Even the boss when he cusses me out. Even my kids when they talk back to me. You say, oh, don't, don't I have a justification to be angry? Uh, wait, wait, wait. Is it because you perceive that they violated your rights? And that's why you're lashing out and angry against your, anger against your kids? Not right. Next, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 32. Uh, he that is slow to anger is better than the mind. Let's give some solutions to anger. Let's move to the next one. You're saying, Brother Joseph, you took seven minutes on this one. And you've got uh, six more points. I know, I'm watching the time. Here it is, letter A. Repent from the spirit of anger. Next, rejoice and find true joy and what God's allowing to happen to you in your life as, a as opposed to self-pity. Next, restore that relationship of the one that's harmed you or that's talked wrong about you or that's caused you to be angry. And here it is. Find God's idea of justice versus our idea of fairness. And that's a whole lesson in and of itself that we don't have time to talk about. Next, learn to love your enemies. Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 to 46. Next, I told someone one time, I said, I said they were lashing out about someone. And uh, uh, that's the way they said, they said, well, love your enemies. What do you want me to do, hug them? I said, no, you don't need to hug them. Come on now, just love them, as Christ did. Christ didn't go around hugging people, but he did love them. He saw them for who God made them to be and what they could be. Next, uh, let's, let's look at number two. Number two, it's number one, anger. Anger. Number two, the stress of guilt. Guilt. How many of you have uh, you've read or you've watched, they did an animated uh, feature of it recently, somewhat recently, maybe 10 years ago, of Pilgrim's Progress? How many of you, how many of you are uh, familiar with uh, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress? You are? Ah, if you've never, you've you got to check it out. I uh, don't have time to talk about what that is. But in the book, he, it's, it's an allegorical book, and there's a Christian, and you remember, he's hunched over with what? He's got this big burden, Right? And the closer he gets to Christ, or the closer he gets to salvation, the more this burden grows, right? And you see him kind of hunched down, and hunched down. And he says, man, how can I get rid of this burden? What was that burden? It was the burden of guilt, right? Ever, why do we have guilt when we sin? Well, the Bible tells us right here. Let's look here. First, let's look at the, the, the comment that we have. God's law is written on our hearts, therefore... When I violate that law, you ever wonder why you can go to, what's the farthest country from here? Australia? I was going to say Antarctica. Pastor's been using Antarctica in his preaching recently, right? Nobody lives down there. I do think there's a, a base down there, though. Uh, probably Australia. I don't know, Brother Gary. What's on the other side of the world? Probably, right? Papua New Guinea, right? Libby, where you at? Wherever she is. Uh, she's going there sometime soon. But there, there you are. Uh, other side of the world. How long does it take to get there? Oh, Okay, long time, long time. But you can go to the most remote place in the, in the world. They have never read the Bible. They've never heard a presentation of the gospel. It doesn't matter where you go. People innately know that don't steal, right? Don't murder. Be faithful. Don't commit adultery. 
right? There's a moral code. Do you know why that is? Well, let's look here. The Bible tells us right here. Therefore, when I violate that law, my God-given conscience convicts me of that sin, leaving me with guilt. Look at Romans chapter 14, uh, 2 verses 14 to 15. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves. Look here. Which show the work of the law written in their hearts. Their conscience also bearing witness, and their thought meanwhile thoughts meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. Do you know that even before we heard about the gospel, God's law is written on our heart, and so we know when we're doing wrong. We know a child can be doing wrong, and you walk into the room. What do they do? <laughs> Jump real quick, right? They knew it in their heart. Their conscience was convicting them. That's why they got scared when you walked in, right? And so, look here. But here's the deal. Man was not made to live with guilt. Our bodies were not made to handle guilt. Therefore, we must deal with guilt God's way. If I can say this, I remember a time where, oh, this was only a couple of years ago. Brother Gary, something that I did when I was in like seventh grade, Seventh grade. Something's really stupid. And periodically over the years, Brother Pineda, I, I think you were probably teaching our science class at that time, if I remember. You probably just got back from Golden State um, and, and taught at that time. Um, I remember, and periodically it would surface. And it was something that I didn't want to go back to the person that I offended against. And I didn't want to bring it back up. I was like, man, that's embarrassing. I don't want to address it. I'm sure we're both over it. But I would go to prayer, Brother John, and guess what? Holy Spirit would bring it up. Not every time, time to time. You know what happened? One day I thought, you know, the Holy Spirit's not letting this thing go. I'm going to go take care of it. I went and I talked to the person you know, at that point, there was a burden that had been there for a long time that was lifted. There was a liberty and a freedom that I just didn't have at that time. I wasn't living a life of sin. I wasn't trying to do wrong. But there was something that the Holy Spirit said, you did that. You need to get it right. Same thing happened when I had gotten saved when I was younger. But I got reassurance of my salvation when I was nine. And from the time I was nine to the time I was 19 or 20, I refused to get baptized embarrassed pastor's kid what did you just get saved all over again you know all the things that go through your mind it's just the devil lying to you and the holy spirit when i would go in prayer he'd say you know your growth is stunted why you're not baptized you're not following the biblical command that's the second thing you get saved you get baptized and go right and so i remember i was in college bible college seth bus captain whole nine yards and i went to the division leader i said hey man i need to talk to you what should i do and he said, you already know what you need to do. Yeah, I know what I need to do. And one of our Bible college professors, Brother John, he looks at, at me during the chapel service. He goes, you know some of you are not baptized, and it's stunting your growth. He looks right at me. Oh, man, that's from the Holy Spirit right there, right? And so I, I decided to get baptized. And again, a burden was lifted. You say, what was that? God's law is written in my heart. And when I violate that law, then my conscience accuses me. And I was not made to live with that guilt. If there's something in your life that's not right, you all need to get that. we need to get that right. Let's get it right. It might be something you've been listening to and you say, I know it's not right. Get it right. 
Maybe it's something you've been looking at or watching or some, a certain way you've been talking or people you've been hanging out with and the Holy Spirit's been convicting you. It's a burden there. Get it right. We were not made to live with guilt. God gave us a built-in biological spiritual mechanism to convict our conscience because of what's written on our heart to help us to get right. For unsaved people, it's supposed to point them to Christ because they know they need a Savior and they can't stop doing what they're doing. For us, it should draw us back to Christ so we have a clean slate and a clean, open relationship with Him. I want to encourage us, if there's anything between us and the Savior tonight, don't live with the guilt any longer. Get it right. Get it right. Get it right. And move on. Psalm chapter 32, 1-5, to and I won't read it for sake of time, but you know it. It's when David was away from God. And what happened? He said, man, it's, it's, it's eating me up. Psalm 51 or 53 as well. It's eating me up. It's eating me up. It's eating me up. It says, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. He said, when I kept silence, my bones waxed old all day. And you, and you see that. He said, I, I, I will confess my transgression unto the Lord and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Let's look at number three. Number three. The next fleshly or inward stress or sin is the stress of lust lust we live in a society that makes billions of dollars off of selling and appealing to our lust we've heard it said that the root cause causes of all our problems are three things bitterness a temporal value system and lust and of those three things lust that leads to moral impurity is the most destructive and the messiest we must realize that the strongest man who ever lived the wisest man who ever lived, and the man who was called a man after God's own heart, all three of them fell to what? To lust. To lust. If the man after God's own heart, if the strongest man, and if the wisest man fell to lust, I have no chance unless I have God's help. And unless I set up, especially in this day and age, and unless I set up some safeguards in my house and, in, and on my phone and in my, uh, with my family, and by the way, in our church. Lust, you have it here, is an unbridled desire to have people, places, things, or pleasures that God has not designed for us to have. People make excuses. Oh, I'm just admiring beauty. Yeah, yeah, you are. Well, this is just the way God made me. We've heard that before. It doesn't hurt anyone. It's just me and the screen. Well, I just can't control my desires. If only, oh, here's a good one. I've heard this one before, Brother John. <laughs> if only I was married, it would be taken care of. Let me just talk to the singles and the teenagers real quick. Marriage will not fix your lust problem. Marriage will only complicate it. And by the way, you will be dragging a sweet young lady, a sweet young girl into your lust problem. She's not going to fix it. You're going to mess her up and give her a heartbreak. And, and dads, they have potential suitors for your daughters. I want to encourage you. Ask him if you can check his phone without giving him a warning. 
Ask him about his thought life. Because if a man cannot control his lust, it's not going to be good for your daughter. It's not going to be good for his future family. We call it holes in the umbrella, right? There's that umbrella of authority, of protection. And when he's not doing what he's supposed to do, he's supposed to be shielding them from the fiery darts and shielding them. We call it kinks in the armor, right? When he's not doing what he's supposed to do, the fiery darts get in, the drops of water come down, and it's going to affect your grandkids. I don't want that. And so ask questions. Get to the root of it. Do a lot of homework. Those of us that have multiple daughters, ah, my daughter's only in seventh grade, but I'm already thinking in that direction. I'm thinking, there's a lot of things I'm thinking. Uh, You know, sometimes we, we, someone said one time uh, in regards to uh, asking one of our our good girls, uh, they, they said, oh, I would go for that one, but I know the dad is too much work. Good for you, dad. Good for you. You weeded him out and you didn't even have to tell him no. Someone who's not willing to go through it, it already answers the question for us, right? Evidences of lust, taking a second look for pleasure. Dressing to attract attention to the body. Remember this, this is important. Men lust when we look. Ladies lust to be looked at goes both ways men don't look men look away ladies help a brother out and don't look in the mirror and dress to attract a man's eyes to anything but your face by the way dads if it's high we'll just say it at our church we believe that if you show the thigh it's nakedness that's what the Bible says. I can show you three specific verses where it says, from, from above the knee and up, it's nakedness. And so, don't let your daughter go out like that. Men, we have, we have good ladies in our church. We have good teenage girls in our church. We really do. And I really think that they have a desire to do what's right. And I really think that if some men were to say, you know what, honey, I love you, and I'm going to give you some... A gift card to go shopping at Sheen. All right, ladies know what that is, right? I'm going to take you to JCPenney. Take you to, I don't know what's high end. We don't do high end stuff. To, to, to Goodwill. I'm going to give you a gift card to Goodwill, right? And I'm going to say, honey, I love you, but we're not going to wear that anymore. We're not going to do the tight low right here and it's black and it's skin colored under. Right? Right? And by the way, men, don't look. Ladies, don't dress to get a man to look. It's both, it's both lustful. I think I lost the crowd on that one right there. All right. Next. All that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, that's a desire for sensual things. The lust of the eyes, that's a desire to acquire. And the pride of life, that's the desire to have status and prestige. All those lusts are not right. What does the Bible say about lust? I'm watching the time. I've got four minutes left. We're only going to finish three points, all right? That's okay here tonight. Here it is. First of all, lust... Uh, let's see here. Lust cannot coexist with the spirit-filled life. If I've got lust in my life, I'm not walking in the spirit. Simple as that. Galatians 5, 16 to 17. Next, lust, I was going to use an illustration. Don't have time. Lust is binding. This is so important. So important. Here it is. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 22. Look here. I think you have it in your notes. His own iniquities shall take the wicked himself. And he shall be holden with the cords of his sin. What's that saying? 
Every time I give in to that habitual sin, whatever it is, it's like a cord that's wrapped around me. It's like that boa constrictor. And he does another wrap, and another wrap, and another wrap. And just before you know it, you can't breathe spiritually, and you're out of the game. Yeah. Lust is binding. Next, lust is a big deal, needs to be dealt with drastically. I say unto you, whoever looketh after a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with, him, with her already in his heart. If thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out. What's he saying? You've got to get drastic about this thing. All right. Next, we can't have victory over lust. I'm just going to go through these quick, quickly. What are some steps to victory? Repent of the sin of lust. Psalm 51, that's when David got right after he committed sin with Bathsheba. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Next, make God's word and prayer a daily part of your life. By the way, this is any addiction. This is any sin. This is anything that comes back time and time again. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Next, learn to cast down imaginations before they take root. What does the Bible say? Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of Christ. And here it is, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And then finally, I'm skipping one here. Uh, get help. Have an accountability pro- uh, pr- uh, partner. I've had men half my age and men twice my age come and say, hey, can, can, can we help with this stuff? My dad left us some really good material. I suggest if you have an issue with that, please, please get right. I'm going to give one more. I've got two minutes and I think we can uh, get through this one. Number four. Number four. Let's do it quickly. Can we? You all right? We still awake? Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Number four. Number three was lust. Number four is the stress of fear. Fear. 2 Timothy 1.7. There's some people that they are, they're just fearful people. Right? God hath not given us, 2 Timothy 1.7, the spirit of what? The spirit of what? He's not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Isaiah 43.5, fear not. He says it hundreds of times in Scripture. All right. Uh, Penn State researchers said that only 8% of the things that we ever fear will ever come true. And of that 8%, we can do nothing about the vast majority of it. All right. Let's give a couple thoughts about fear. First of all, why should we not fear? Because fear is contagious. It's contagious. Deuteronomy 20, what did he say? When they were going to go to war, he said, hey, if anybody's scared, go home. Right. Why is that? He says it right there in the, in, in the, the verse. He says, because you're going to cause your brother's heart to melt. I remember in, in Cambodia, uh, not too long ago, uh, I've been to the bridge. There's a bridge, and they had a big festival, and thousands of people were on the bridge, and one person got fearful and screamed or, 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 or panicked, and it caused uh, a, a whole bunch. 700 people were injured. 378 people were trampled or suffocated to death. Why? Because fear breeds fear, right? Uh, when it comes to God's work, there's no room for fear right? God says, go out boldly and share the gospel. Don't be fearful, right? God says, go out and do my will. Oh, but I don't know if I, if, if, how am I going to be provided for? Don't fear. Don't fear. Fear breeds fear. That's why he says, fear not. They said, fear is contagious. Next. Here's the next one. Uh, fear paralyzes. Revelation 21, 8. Don't have time to talk about that. Fear affects our health. Next. Fear changes our priorities. How? The fear of rejection causes us to seek the approval of others rather than the Lord, Right? The Pharisees did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they love the praise of man more than the praise of God. Teenagers, why is it that when someone's talking about something shady in the locker room, or doing a shady gesture, or singing a shady song, we just sit there like a lump on a log and don't say anything? Because we fear rejection. 
We don't want to stick out like a sore thumb. Why don't you just get over that? The Bible says, fear not. Take a stand for that which is right. By the way, in society, evil triumphs when good men, what? Do nothing. Why do men do nothing? Because they're fearful. Uh, I shouldn't share this. He probably won't talk to me tonight. Uh, my son, he said, my favorite quote, top two favorite quotes. One of them is, give me liberty or give me death. We had this conversation just last night. I said, I said, all right. I said, so what if, son, someone says, I'll let you live, but you got to give up your freedoms. I flipped the script on him, right? I said, and they, and they threaten to kill you or take away your liberty. He goes, I'll just move out of the country. <laughs> I said, that's not the point, son. That's not the point. You can't love the quote and, and not live it. All right. But uh, next, fear of the unknown paralyzes us from following God's will by faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out, went out, not knowing whether he went. How many times does God call a young person? I've heard this, unfortunately. And the parents say, well, how are you going to provide for your family if you go into the ministry? Or maybe God calls us to give a certain amount by faith. Maybe God calls us to step out and do something. Let's not be paralyzed by the fear of the unknown. And um, let's do this. Let me just give you, let me just give you the last two. I'll give you one illustration and I'll let you go. Sometimes pastor does let out by 8.05, right? And I'm not going to do it, but sometimes he does. Um, there was a man uh, who was diagnosed with a, they gave him a couple weeks to live. A couple weeks to live. And he said, man, and he's trying to get his will in order and get everything together. And he, he was walking by, and he saw a holdup at a bank. My dad would show this illustration a long time ago. There's a holdup, and he said, you know what? I've got nothing to lose, Seth. He said, I've got nothing to lose. I'm just going to run in there and, and go stop the robber. And the guy has a gun, and so he walks straight into the bank, and he walks straight up to the guy with the gun, sticking up the bank. He says, hey, man, put that down. And the guy was so surprised that a guy walked up to him. They said, uh, okay, and he put the gun down. That man went back to the doctor the following week, and it was a mistake. He actually didn't have a couple weeks to live. It was a, it was a misread uh, uh, diagnosis. <laughs> and he was upset. He goes, man, I could have died. You see how our perspective has changed. And, and by the way, when we live for a purpose bigger than ourselves, we're not afraid to die. We're not afraid of what the world might slander us with or might say about us or what might happen to us. Why? Because I have a purpose bigger than myself. How do I conquer fear? Turn our fears into follow, uh, powerful prayers. The fear of the wicked shall come upon him, but the desire of the righteous shall be granted. When fear comes, turn that into a prayer. God, I know I'm fearful, but do the opposite and pray about it. Next, follow Christ, leave the rest unto him. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me. If I'm walking with him and following him through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm okay. Follow him and leave the rest up to him. Next, be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Next, find a purpose bigger than yourself. Next, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. Next, use your most powerful weapon, which is prayer. And we are going to stop right there because our time is up. All right. Thank you so much for listening here tonight. Let's all stand together. We'll pray. And we'll dismiss. You say, what are the other ones? You'll never be able to have victory in those other three areas because we ran out of time. I'm just kidding. Thank you so much for being attentive tonight. Thanks for being here. And those of us that are going to the couples retreat, it's going to be great. Let's be ready for it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for, thank you for our church family and, and just their faithfulness. And it's encouraging to see a full house a midweek service. Lord, I do pray that you be with Pastor as he's out. Um, pray you be with the couples as we head out to the retreat. Give us a great time. Be with our people the rest of the week. Be with us tonight as we go our ways. We'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for being here. God bless you. You can be dismissed.